Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Let's Talk EU podcast, which appears regularly talking about EU regulatory affairs, the latest legislation, uh, what is going on in the EU bubble. Today with me, I have someone who I shouldn't really ha even have to introduce because he's so well known in the EU bubble. And of course, I am talking about Carol Leno. He's with me today to talk on the Retail Investment Strategy Package, which came out um, a week or so ago. And of course, as for those of you that don't know him, he's been around, I think, Carol, for the last 30 years in the EU bubble. Um, you created and set up SEPS, the very acknowledged European think tank. You're a general manager of the European Capital Markets Institute. And really, you know, there is not uh, a piece of legislation that comes out in the EU without SEPS or ECMI having an opinion on it and, and taking a close look at it. You've also set up quite a lot of um, task forces, which have been really important wading in on capital markets union, on many different subjects of retail, investor, asset management, name just but a few. And really, you also serve, of course, in many boards, uh, foundations, supervisor authorities in their stakeholders group. So you are really a leading light in EU affairs, let's say. And I couldn't discuss the retail investment strategy without having your um, opinion and, and views on this. So the retail investment strategy was a very long-awaited piece of, of, of the legislat legislative proposal. It, it was named a strategy, but is it really a strategy or is it just a proposal for legislation, which seems to be more the case, which is a pity. And I hope you'll agree with me there, Carol, because I was looking forward to even more debate because I think the retail investor is really a key focus. We all know it. Um, in 2015, when CMU came out, there was a lot of talk about making Europe fit for the retail investor. We were going to mirror the Anglo-Saxon London market, the US market with strong retail interest. Now we're in 2023 and we're very far from that. I mean, there are some small lights that have come up on Capital Markets Union, but we are really far below where we all thought we might be ending up. And one of the problems, of course, for the retail investor has been um, the lack of transparency in the products they're buying, the lack of transparency on commissions, um, the difference between of treatment of a retail investor between insurance, banks, and asset managers. And that has created really a confusion. So do we blame retail investors for not wanting to even touch the water? I don't. Um, I find it complicated. I've been working for 40 years in financial services, and I must admit, I find retail financial products very complicated. I don't understand what the risk profile is. I have trouble understanding the commissions. So let alone for me, then what is it for other people? And I think that's the background we have. We need very desperately to build this capital markets union. Have we got about it in the right way? I'll have a question for you, for you on that later. Um, we at CFA Institute, we did a, a global survey on inducements, which is part of the package of the retail investment strategy. And of course, SEPS did a, a study on commissions and inducements for the European Commission last year, which was very notable and took a look at um, countries like the Netherlands, where there has been a ban on inducements. Our charter holders are coming down much more. And of course, this is globally, but there is a sort of assimilation. They come down more on not going for an immediate ban, but for progressive. They say what is most important is that 
full transparency and explanation. Uh, really understanding that who is sitting in front of you is getting a commission from it or what it, what exactly is the structure of that commission? How does it impact your profitability? So that for us was really important. And when we came out, we came out with this global survey just before uh, the, the retail investment strategy. And what was interesting, I think, for me personally as a CFA Institute employee was to see that this survey was actually used by both sides of the equation, whether it was the asset management associations or whether it was the uh, retail investors associations, they quoted from this survey saying, you know, this is a voice that shows some reason in this very polarized landscape debate on, on commissions and inducements. Mairead McGuinness herself said um, in a recent speech, of course, that she really did want to ban inducements. But in the end, it was being seen as being too disruptive because, of course, the market underlying market structures are so different in each member state that it is difficult to come to uh, a sense about this. But that doesn't mean to say that we don't have to progress and go forward on this. So in my first question to you, Carol, the European Commission put forward its final proposal in the RIS retail investment strategy for partial ban of inducements on in execution only services where there's no advice relationship. But I'd like to hear also your opinion. What what do you think of this advice piece? Because advice, it's very subjective. Who is giving advice? Is it right to give this advice? And can we see a differentiation? ECMI, of course, wrote a commentary on this measure, and maybe we could take it from there. Up to you. Thank you, Rosina. Pleasure to discuss this issue, which, by the way, is an old issue, which has been discussed since a long time, but continues to drag upon commission services, ESMA, other regulators, supervisors in Europe, how to come up with the right solution to really allow or facilitate or, or to bring retail investors to the markets. Because the first thing we need to remember in Europe that overall the retail investor participation in capital markets is extremely limited. So I mean, it's half of what it is if you just take a measure of what it is in the United States, because you can simply look at how much is in deposits and how much is in capital markets products. And that is, for example, we have double as much in Europe in a deposit as compared to the United States, but then half as much in capital markets products like investment funds or like, like shares. And there you see already there's a problem. And certainly you see this in a context of, kind of saving for retirement, long-term investments, which all households should do. If you look in Europe, let's say at these figures, you see that more than the majority of the countries have a problem to have a decent, provide for a decent savings model or instrument for households for retirement. And that's, of course, a big problem. And that's what should be the context. So first of all, not enough into long-term products which bring a decent return, capital markets product, and then secondly, insufficient savings for retirement. So both things are extremely important, certainly today in a context of high inflation, where basically you see that our savings are extremely rapidly eroded. Of course, it has gone down recently, but we still and we expect to be in a context of inflation of around 3, 4, 5% for some time to come. Let's see, this will not uh, improve very rapidly. But in, in this context, it is extremely important to think about ways, and I agree with you, Josina, 
this is probably not sufficiently of a strategy. It is a series of amendments to existing pieces of legislation where, by the way, as I said, it's an old issue already 30 years ago in the first investment services directive. There was clearly only one, I think, one sentence even saying that conflicts of interest should be avoided and fiduciary duty has to be respected when an investor asks for advice to a bank. He should be served, or to an investment firm, he should be served in his interest, not the interest of the provider. And this article has been further clarified over the last, say, 30 years. Unfortunately, to say it like this, it is 30 yeah. years. Yeah. But we're still struggling. And what you see in the proposal which were made by the Commission early June is that we're still struggling and we haven't found a solution, which of course is due to the fact, as you say, Georgina, that we have a very fragmented market and that the kind of products which are used for long-term savings in the different European markets are very different. They go from funds or equity-based products in certain member states to long-term life insurance products in other members. Like in France and Germany, it's profound, but a profoundly mostly life insurance product. So the advice element on a life insurance product is already totally different than the advice element on an investment product. And I often say, I pay for advice in a product which I bought 30 years ago because I have product which I bought when I was starting to work, when I didn't have a pension plan related to my job. But I'm still paying the advice for the advice I got once. That doesn't make any sense. But of course, when somebody who bought a life, a real life insurance product, because the product I have is not really a life insurance product, it only has a tax advantage. But if you have a real life insurance product, there is certainly argument to be said that that person may have to have some advice on an annual basis, which is what insurance companies say. So that's the problem for the commission. How can we overcome this huge diversity of markets and to bring it, align it a bit uh, in a certain sense? I think what is proposed now is basically a bit of a compromise because everybody in Brussels knows that the lobbying on this piece of legislation has been extremely intense. And that basically, as I said to many people, the financial services sector, which is now complaining about overregulation, which is in the proposal, is harvesting basically the results of the lobbying which have been seen going on about this issue for at least the last two or three years. I mean, this is a very sensitive issue, certainly for financial services providers, which want to maintain their revenues from these products and have been lobbying extremely hard from different things at all levels in the member states and in the European Commission. And then, of course, what do you get as if you're sitting in the European Commission? You see there is a problem. We see there is a problem that there is not enough savings for environment, that both of these products are far too costly and are a disincentive to invest in these products. If you're an official, you say you have to do something about it, then you regulate further. And that's what we have now, further regulation to basically, we shoot both sides a bit saying, look, yes, we can continue to have, uh, we can continue to have, let's say, inducements, but they are further clarified in which case you can do this. I mean, there are measures around it. And on the other hand, uh, they are banned. If it's for execution on the question, which I have right away, if I see this, yes, good to do this, but can you implement this? I mean, mm -hmm. would it be easier to have a very a simpler way, basically to say we have an overall ban. And we know there's uh, one country or two countries uh, in Europe which have done this, 
and which have their not a bad experience. I agree with the, the point that the current proposed piece of, of legislation is an, a, a series of amendments and not a strategy. And I think you, you very rightly point to that. I think you also very rightly mentioned the point on lobbying. And I think um, the lobbying, particularly for the retail investor, has had the consequence of exacerbating positions and polarizing um, between black and white rather than trying to find pragmatic solutions for the fact that we are fragmented, that we can't speak about one capital market. We're not London. We're not the US. Um, we have also um, what I think is, is is different, of course, is that we have a view towards um, retail investors where we're not sure whether we ought to protect them and uh, prevent them from making mistakes or whether we ought to go the Anglo-Saxon where you say, well, you know, they can do take all the products they want, which is what we see in the US. There are, of course, some protections, but they're far more, you know, be speculative, go into the market, um, make sure you, you know, even your own pension, make sure you manage it. Um, we're, we're so used to, even with our pensions, of thinking, well, we'll get a government pension. We'll get well, somehow our jobs are giving us pensions that we don't have to think about investing. And I think this is really one of the things that, of course, we also make footsteps around, but we really don't discuss is fundamentally what do we see as responsibility or not? And this has impacts on the way you look at, for example, financial education. This has impacts on the way you look at uh, value for money. This has many impacts. And where we, where we, we are hovering, it seems to me, between politically that we are a caring legal structure that takes care of people. We have unemployment benefits. We have medical benefits, etc. Um, but at the same time, we are desperate for more individuality going into the markets because, frankly, it's not sustainable. And so we we have this 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 balance that keeps on, and nobody is able to take definitive steps because, of course, it's very sensitive politically. If you even open national newspapers, you see how politically sensitive it is. So targeting retail investors, aiming to protect them and to empower them, how can we take the right measures, Carol? If you had to, if, if let's say, if you were writing a strategy for retail investors to make capital market, to make a proper capital markets union, what would be your five key points? Five, I don't know. Maybe more. In the first thing I would do, very important thing, I would look at the Nordic example, certainly what you have in Sweden and in Denmark, which, by the way, is not sufficiently mentioned, where there is no ban on inducements, but where there is a much more hands-on attitude of the supervisors. So the supervisors control very carefully what is the fees which are charged by providers, and they have basically kind of an ex-ante I mean, an ex-ante check with providers every year before they basically sell their products to say, what are you going to do this year? What is your asset management strategy? What's the cost of charge? And that's why in all these surveys, you see that Sweden and Denmark come out by far the lowest. But what do they have? They have big funds. And they're not necessarily employment-related funds. They are simply big pension funds or they allow for big, I mean, government kind of controlled 
large pension funds or say large long-term plans which allow people to save long-term and which have very good returns because they have their hands-on attitude, they look at the fees and they also allow what basically the commission should do as well, just that most of these assets are pulled in a few big funds. And it's not that we have, like in many other European countries, not only at the European level, but also at the national level, you have an enormous dispersion of funds. We have far too many funds in Europe, even at the national level, even in a small country like Belgium, we have far too many funds. And it's obvious if you compare it to the United States or another market, it's obvious the lower the size of the funds, I mean, the average, I think in Europe is about three to 400 million, the higher the cost. I mean, in the United States, it's 10 times the size, is, I mean, the average size of a fund is 10 times what it is in Europe. Of course, your costs are higher if you have lower funds on average. And of course, as we know that our capital market structure in Europe, certainly on the settlement side, is still extremely dispersed. We still have about something like 33 clearing and settlement systems. Of course, that increases cost. So if you were to ask me a strategy how to integrate it, I would create such large pan-European funds, like we try to do by the way, the personal European pension product, sizable funds, of course, which take them time. If you look at it, again, at the examples of Denmark and Sweden, they have been created only probably in the 70s or the 80s, but they are performing now. It takes 30 years. So you have to have a very long-term strategy. It's a clear public policy imperative to do this because you have to think about, as you were saying, Josina, about people's long-term thing, but people shouldn't be expecting that the state will do it for them. No, but they should be incentivized to have... I mean, to put their money in this long-term savings plans, to think about their retirement and not to all of a sudden be poor when they are old, but the state has a public policy role. I mean, has a has a function. It's, it's, an, a, it's a task of the state to say, look, people, you should stay for your long-term because we as a state can you, provide you a basic pension, but that pension will not be enough to keep a decent standard of living as you're used when you work. So that is extremely important. So that's what the state has to do. So we have to tackle certainly this fragmentation, even at the national level, a much more hands-on attitude of supervisory authorities. Thirdly, we have to also supervise the authorities, have to tackle excess fees, which we also know is a problem. And people can say, but where do you get the information from? ESMA, the European Securities Market Authority, very clearly says this. They say that these fees are too high and they are starting to decline a bit now. But it's far too limited. There is the issue, which, of course, implicitly I said already, which is the education of investors. I mean, telling people, look, don't expect the state to take care of you. You have to be aware that you need to invest long term and that you need to think for your retirement that you have something inside. Because on top of that, we live longer. We probably worked a bit longer already in Europe, but above all, we live much longer and you have to have a decent income for that uh, period. And probably an, another thing which is important, as you think about this, is that we need to have products which are interesting, which are understandable for average retail investors, what they're doing with their money. I mean, the problem is in the legislation which we have today is if, for example, you want to invest in Europe in a corporate bonds, uh, you need to be already a an above average specialized investor. And in many banks, you will not even have the possibility um, so, the in I mean the training of of the education of investors is extremely important. 
but our legislation may be extremely prescriptive as well in not allowing an average investor to invest in certain products, whereas they can invest in very other products. So we have somewhere a legislation which is, I think, has come uh, become a bit more too, too detailed, and which is probably also much more drafted with certain financial services providers in mind that really um, the interest of the investors. And, and that as well will have to be addressed, I think, above all, about the requirements, what they call unsuitability and appropriateness in the MIFID. Yeah. That's how I do it in a nutshell. I address up the other things, taxation is another issue which we have to address, but I don't mention it mostly because I know it's extremely difficult to uh, progress on that level at European level. But uh, we have seen on the other hand, recently, that we have got an agreement on a minimum corporate tax. So why couldn't we find, let's say, at least a single withholding tax at the European level, which is also extremely important, certainly for dividends and interesting. Absolutely. I think on the withholding tax, uh, our members in, in, in the EU have pointed this out time and time again. I remember the very first survey we did on Capital Markets Union, it came up. I mean, it's, it's, it's logical. You know, you want to create a market have one simple withholding tax. Thank you for referring to that very long process that happened in the Nordics, 30 years. And of course, this is the problem. We have very short political mandates. Um, you know, how can we implement? And we can look to our Nordic uh, colleagues and see how they managed to overcome these short-term political mandates with a far longer-term vision of where they wanted to be. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've had many of these sessions in Brussels with the Nordic example, um, but somehow it hasn't filtered through. And I think that that is a great pity. You talk about supervision and supervision, more sort of more active supervision at the national level, also more for ESMA, IOPA and EBA um, the, through supervisory authorities. The risk package does give some mandate to ESMA and IOPA to implement technical standards for the content and format of risk warnings that investment firms and insurance companies need to provide, as well as the development of cost and performance benchmarks. So this does a little bit go towards what we're saying, but does ESMA have the right tools and resources to deal with these challenges? Uh, what can be done to facilitate the role of ESMA? I think ESMA certainly has the tools to do this. Uh, probably they don't have sufficient resources, but on the other hand, ESMA has already become, I think many people do not know, but has almost, I think, a staff of close to 400 people. So that's already very sizable. That's the size of an average uh, national market conduct authority. Uh, so if you have that many people at European level and you manage your cooperation with national supervisory authorities, well, I think that they were not. But what I appreciate above all, what ESMA has done over the last years, has much more big into data. Of course, initially, ESMA, as well with the other European supervisory authorities, uh, were doing essentially regulatory, legislative, what we call level two, were implementing technical standards, etc., drafting this. But also ESMA, what they've done recently, since the last three or four years, have come out with very good data sets on, for example, cost of, of funds, on um, kind of funds which exist in different member states. And they have overcome what was a problem when I started to work on this, that there was not, certainly not a public data source. There were some private data sources, but overall the quality of the data was not good. Today, ESMA has extremely good data. And I mean, there are reference for everybody. I know some people don't like to refer to it, but they are beyond doubt, extremely good. And that was extremely important 
that this uh, that this was done. What I think ESMA will have to do more because ESMA, according to its statutes, can also do more to protect retail investors. They have started to do this, but it's basically kind of the ultimate option if they think insufficient action is taken at the member state level. They can issue a warning to a member state that they have to do something, or they can also say that a certain product, which is out in a certain member state, is dangerous and should not be allowed. So they have kind of, they have the second stage and they can act against the member state. Probably ESMA will say, look, we don't have enough people to do this sufficiently, or say to do this on a large scale because they have done this only a few times so far. But um, it's certainly something they can do and it's certainly an important stick. And I would simply wish that ESMA starts to do this more, but on the basis of the data and the enormous information they have started to collect, I expect ESMA will do this even more in the future. We've seen it in the case of, for example, a specific case of Wirecard, the way they have assessed the way that uh, the German authorities didn't see this Wirecard case uh, coming and didn't inform retail investors because, by the way, many retail investors lost money in, in Wirecard. But they've also issued warnings against, for example, Cyprus, I mean, give them an ultimatum against Cyprus because they said, look, Cyprus, for what you authorize, you cannot control. So you're authorizing far too many products, which is, by the way, a problem in other member states as well, which you cannot control sufficiently, for which, again, the retail investors may be. I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. I think the use of data, the very many information pieces on the market, what is happening in the market. Um, that ESMA, specifically ESMA and IOPA and DBA come out with are, have been really very useful. Um, I think um, the problem always is that there is this onus and they want to do more, but we have two sets of supervision systems. We have the European, um, which is convergence and some direct supervision, and we have the national supervision. And there is a tension because, of course, um, National supervisors are loath to give up their powers, but we know that at some stage there has to be more of a transfer. Some supervisors are more aware of this and saying we want more EU supervision and others hold on to their powers. So this creates, of course, an uneven supervisory convergence. But I think I agree with you. I think the role that ESMA has done is since 2011 has been absolutely very, very, very impressive. I couldn't imagine where at that stage in 2011 where we would be today. So I think this is absolutely uh, very, very good. Then my last question to you, Carol, is very much the blue sky thinking one. You've given me some pointers already of where you would like things to go. But we are ending this current commission in 2024. Elections are coming. We have the Spanish presidency, which is going to be the last one where truly um, uh, legislative proposals will go through. And then we have a, always a traditional period of wait and see as a new commission comes in. What would you say to this new commission? What is your to-do list for this new com commission? I think uh, we published a report at the end of last year with some very generic proposals for capital markets and capital markets union. And, and they are contained in there. And that is, for example, what I outlined already in the context of the Nordic example, look at models of capital market development, which work well in the EU. Probably, we have suggested this already before. We thought, let's say, the term capital markets union is not a correct term because you need to have capital markets development first at the local level before you can speak about the union. 
because we have enormous differences in market development in the EU. And if you impose then a union on top of that, which means that everything has to be exactly the same in every member state, that of course creates certainly for less developed markets a very heavy regulatory burden. Think about now Ukraine or Moldova, which will have to join the union hopefully in say seven years or so, but which will have to implement all the legislation which we have. What this means, certainly only in the capital market side. So we have to look at the legislation which we have, and probably like also the commission knows very well. I mean, since we look, haven't we overdone it in certain ways? Let's say, shouldn't we think about ways in all legislation as well, which can stimulate market development? So that for me would be a very important thing. Let's say, look at local market development and what we can do. Because certainly in Southeastern Europe, markets haven't developed at all over the last 10 years. So we have to watch this. So that would be an important thing. Look at so development indicators first before you look at integration indicators. We look too much at integration indicators, but we need to look at development indicators. Once we have more development, that we probably will have more integration, not vice versa. So And then we can set some KPIs, uh, key performance indicators, where we say, look, this is the target which we should reach. And if we don't reach this or with a problem, we have to address probably problems at the local level, for which the EU has also the instruments, let's say there are regional development instruments, etc., which exist in a long time, but which can be further refined to do this. I think they, we should also think about some showcases. Um, for example, I often mentioned the case, why was Porsche not a European-wide IPO and why was it kept as a German IPO? So if we want to be as a commission, as an EU, instructive towards our citizens and say, but look, we want to develop a capital market, we have to have cases which demonstrate what the capital market can do, then we say, look, Porsche, which is known by the entire world and is a well-known European company, we could have done it as a European public offering rather than a national public offering. And basically saying like this, because we have harmonized the situation a bit so much, that by authorizing it European-wide, that the investor protection rules are similar, they are not exactly the same, they're sufficiently similar to allow for a European-wide offering. And that would give a boost certainly to Europe's capital markets. Other things is, for example, if you then develop long-term savings plans in member states where you have the obligation for states to do a lot about this to tackle fragmentation, tackle cost, and stimulate long-term investment, to look at cases what this long-term investment can lead to at the local level, where again, the Nordics are a fantastic example, which, will, for example, with, if you look at IPOs, for example, in Sweden and in Denmark, certainly in Sweden, they were the highest. Also, you see a direct relationship between the existence of long-term savings plans and also local market development. By the way, many Europeans also do not know which is the second highest market cap in Europe. I've asked it several times in panels. Europeans don't know, but it is a Danish company which is called Novelardis, which has a market cap, which is, I mean, everybody knows that LVMH, the Luxury company is the biggest market cap in Europe, but nobody knows that. Say no, many Europeans, non-Danes, do not know that the second market cap is basically a what is seen to be a hardly known pharmaceutical company, Novan Nordisk, but it has a market cap of more than 250 billion, which shows that if you have the local tools for long-term savings, you have also it grows, it helps to grow local champions, so to say. To become really capital market drivers. And you also you see an entire mentality around it, certainly again in Sweden and in Denmark, that retail investors 
invest not only in these blue chips, but also in offspins and startups which exist in these markets. And if there is a large variety of startups, for example, like in a market like Sweden, of course, some will fail, but there are certainly a few which will be grow enormously and which will provide you the benefits, certainly also for retail investors. And that's what they also see, for example, in Sweden, that many ordinary investors invest in such stuff. So that's what we need to do as well. Look at local cases and bring them out to the public at large, look how they can help European investors to better invest their savings long term. I, I really like the examples you gave um, where we might in a way do, um, you know, a ta-ta-ta, i.e. an upside-down apple cake, where we don't so focus so much on that EU level, but we start looking at the local examples and build from that part and take examples, take best practice. Your example of the Porsche IPO is a very good one. You know, it appeals to everyone. We could have made a really good European IPO with that. So I think you you give some very encouraging words for the next commission. And I think we could say we need an upside-down apple cake approach for the next commission. Carol, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. To our listeners, look out for the next podcast, which will be happening shortly in, in, in the summer months. But anyway, thank you very much, Carol, for your insights, for your expertise, and, and your know-how on this very important topic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Zina. Pleasure.